Hello, everyone, and welcome to Novel When the Mountains Call. Boy, do we have a treat for you today. I have Shannon Baker, the author, the writer of this amazing story with us, and I have been looking forward to this for weeks, and I'm sure that you have been too. So, Shannon is not going to give away any of the secrets, so don't get your hopes up, but boy, are we going to have fun diving into episode six and also just quite a lot about what inspired this story on Shannon's part. So Shannon and Caleb and Jonathan met back at Luther College. They all are recent graduates and are working together on this project. Shannon, welcome to When the Mountains Called, your podcast. (laughs) Thanks. How are you? (laughs) Very well, thanks. I wanted to start out just by letting us tell everyone a little bit about yourself. I mean, people love the idea of being able to talk to the writer when they are so wrapped up in a story like this and to be able to pick her brain, you know. So first of all, who is Shannon? Oh, man. I think I have to get out of the you're not interviewing for a job mindset (laughs) for that question. Um, I, I think of myself, I guess, first and foremost, just as someone who likes to think about life and... You know, I like to think that I'm a writer and I do that through writing, but lately at least I've been going on a lot of fun adventures and so I like to think of myself as an adventurer too. Well, and both of those things would contribute to this story, obviously, right? Right. And, well, I I started to dive into something I don't want to dive into yet. We'll come back to it, but (laughs) um, let's go just a little deeper. What was your degree from Luther? Yeah. So I, boy, it changed a lot from the first year, but ultimately I ended up with an English degree uh, with a writing emphasis and then also a Spanish degree. Mm, That's fantastic. Well, I was wondering if it was English or writing or something like that, because I, I don't mind being candid here. This is some of the best writing I've read in years and years and years, and... You know, usually we expect this level of writing with these kinds of insights and metaphors and, you know, all of this. It usually comes from someone who has many more years of writing professionally and many more life experiences. I mean, you're not an old gal. No, (laughs) not Not yet. (laughs) But you're writing Andrew very well as an old man, I tell you. It's, It's amazing. So... Let's talk a little bit more about the writing. How did you get started? Yeah, with this with this story particularly, uh, I think it was a bit of a slow burn. Um, I so Caleb had come to me back in June about this project with Jonathan, and the three of us had kind of done a super brief brainstorm about different themes we wanted to see but I didn't really actually start writing it until the end of June actually when I right when I had moved out to Glacier National Park for the summer so it was very apt because the setting of the story is largely in the mountains and you know I'm from northern Minnesota the mountains are not my home unfortunately (laughs) so um, just going out there was was a really good instigator for starting, especially because I knew I wanted it to be in the mountains because I thought, hey, I'm going out to the mountains for the summer. It's a place I've never seen or rarely seen. And so what better chance to you know, let myself discover the mountains as Andrew does, mm. you know, at the same time. I did not know that. That's very cool. And I'm sure that contributes to some of the realistic images that we get out of the mountain descriptions. I hope so. Yes. (laughs) Well, let's rewind a little bit further back than that. When did you first start thinking of yourself as someone who loved to write? Second grade jumps to mind. Um, I've always, uh, my mom actually, you know, used to make us do journals as kids in the summer because she didn't want us to lose our ability to write over the summer. So I would write in journals, but I eventually got bored talking about my own self. And oh, today I went to grandma's, you know, which was fun, but not fun to write every day. So I started to write stories back in second grade. Wow. Um, That just kind of grew 
I think through middle school and they were always just for myself or for English class um, until the end of eighth grade when we had to write or we had the opportunity to write a novel in a month and you know for an eighth grader a novel won't be very long but if you met your goal you could get your novel kind of self-published and you could just get a little copy of it and that was just too good to be true so I did that and after that I think I just kind of never stopped writing. Interesting. You know, when I was in high school, three of us talked one of our English teachers into allowing us to try to write a novel in a semester. I failed. <laughs> I failed. It, <laughs> oh, no. Well, you know, I, I, I wrote a lot of pages and a lot of words, and in the end, she gave me a good grade. But the bottom line was I never completed that novel because uh, it was just too much, way too much. But that's impressive that you could do, you know, especially at that age, that you could write even a short novel in a month. That's crazy. <laughs> well, I'm not going to claim, I'm not going to claim it was good writing. I read it back now and it's kind of <laughs> something you cringe at, but <laughs> I, you know, you have to start somewhere and, and there's definitely, there's definitely times when I read it and I'm a little bit impressed with myself. I think that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> it's like an eighth that's grader. That's fun. So how did you develop your talent for writing? I know there are people out there listening to this who are aspiring writers themselves. Any tips? Oh, it sounds so cliche, but I just think just writing anything is helpful. If you wait to have a good idea, you'll be waiting forever. Mm. Because especially if you're a writer, you're probably a perfectionist and you're probably your harshest critic. And so if you wait for yourself to be ready to write, you'll never write. And that's, that's what I learned, at least in, in college and with my uh, professor, my creative writing professor, Dr. Weldon, talked a lot about, you know, just picking up the pen and forcing yourself to write and not changing anything you've written until, you know, a set time. Because if you start to self-edit before it's even done, again, you're not going to get anywhere. Interesting. Yeah, it just reminded me of something that Caleb actually said about writing music the other day. He said that uh, most composers never consider their work to be done. When they write a symphony or a piece, they never know when, when the done date happens, right? It's just they run out of time, somehow it gets published, and they're like, well, I would have liked to have done a lot more to that. You know what I mean? So you almost have yeah. to set a limit in any creative endeavor, right? So you're writing. He, you just said, don't self-edit too much. Make sure you finish your time. And I'm like, oh, well, that, that sounds familiar. Yeah. Hmm. I'm sure he can relate. <laughs> okay. Well, one of the questions I wanted to ask you was that there is so much deep and multifaceted symbolism in When the Mountains Called. And to be frank, few people think, you know, with that kind of metaphor. Um, allegory, metaphor, paradigm, symbolism simile, whatever the word is that we should be using here. This is impressive because I think it's kind of hard to get into that zone and do a good job with it, but you're knocking it out of the park. So does this type of thinking come naturally for you? I think I've conducted a lot of writing or you know, I had a lot of writing projects recently where I've kind of pushed myself into the more abstract thinking. Um, yeah, I'm fortunate to have friends who like to have philosophical conversations. And I've always just, like I said, I mean, I got, I started writing because of journaling and that's processing your thoughts. And you're just processing your thoughts and processing your journey through a story that's not explicitly yours. So I guess just over time, it's, it's the way I prefer to write. I honestly can't imagine writing more literally, which, you know, maybe is also a skill to develop. Well, second then, and add on to that question, when you're sitting down to write and you want to be writing more abstractly, what do you do to enter into that mindset? Do you have any rituals or practices that get you there that plug you in? Um, I think that, you know, I, I just have to be alone. 
is the biggest thing. You know, no distractions, no other people. Because I, I will always choose conversation over mm. writing by myself. But if I'm not tempted to have conversation, all I have to talk to is myself and my thoughts. So if I can put myself in that position, you know, I'm, I guess when I was writing Andrew's story, you know, it's like, I'm, you know, kind of like me talking to Andrew because I'm writing him, but yeah, it eventually got to the point, especially at this point in the story, episode six, where Andrew just kind of, it sounds strange, but just started to do his own thing. And I just knew how to follow along. And I think, you know, in the first few episodes, setting up the setting, and which does change, but setting up the world and setting up the expectations almost took a little bit more, you know, I wasn't deeply into the world. It was just me sitting in a room writing and thinking and going back and rewriting. But as, as time went on, there was less and less rewriting because it just flowed. Yeah, the story takes on its own life. I, my sister is a writer as well. And one day she told me that she was writing one of her novels and she was crying and saying, I didn't know that had to happen. I didn't know that had to happen. Oh. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh, come on. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, but I think... That's the best, Writers <laughs> get into that experience, right? Because they get surprised yeah. by what develops in the storyline, even though they're writing it. Right. So, okay. And I guess, I don't, I would say maybe that's why... That's why it's, it never feels done, why it never feels done for a composer, for mm. a writer. Is even when the plot's over, you know, Andrew hasn't left my brain. And, you know, it, it just because his story is over doesn't mean that he is in my brain. And I, I don't know, I imagine maybe Caleb can speak to that a little bit with music. But. Yeah, I, these, these characters, actually, this is a beautiful segue. Thank you for that. These characters kind of become a part of us when we get to know them this intimately. You know what I mean? And so that was actually my next question. Um, when you sit down to write, like when you sat down to write this, did you first make an outline? Did you do character sketches and try to get to know the end result from the beginning? You know, doing the, the God thing, where you know what's going to happen each step of the way? <laughs> or do you just sit down with a blank piece of paper and say, here we go, let's see what happens? I'd say more so the second mm option um but like i said i think setting up the world i i it's not so much that i you know brainstorm on paper unless i'm writing an essay but um, if it's creative fiction especially in the story this case here it's not like i sat down and you know outlined okay he's gonna live in this type of region and here's what it looks like that's more just kind of free writing um, and it just kind of, you know, I keep some things and let some things go, but I do sit and think a while before I start typing. And I guess I just kind of let the world build itself in my head. And then I start, I don't really, you know, create a list, especially of characteristics, um, for characters, because that feels like I'm boxing them in a mm. little bit. Wow. That's. That's fascinating. I know a lot of uh, writers would recommend just the opposite. They would say, okay, oh, totally. uh, you're going to have to write a book about your character before you start the book, you know, so yeah. you know this character inside <laughs> out. But what you're saying is that you, you really love the idea of discovering the character as you write. Right. Well, and I think that this story lends itself well to that. Um, I don't think my creative writing professors would be too happy to hear that <laughs> process if, if, if that's how I had done my, you know, senior project. But I think that with this type of story, it is so much a story of self-discovery that it almost defeats the purpose if I do all the discovering before the story's even well, started. Well, I think you probably just answered my next thought, which, you know, here's the cliche, <laughs> begin with the end in mind. You hear that a lot, right? Did you yeah. do that with this story? Did you have the ultimate goal for the story when you started? No, I didn't. And I, without giving away what happens at the end, what I can say is that there reached a point in the next few episodes where it, it almost just suddenly clicked in my brain. I know how these threads come together. 
and almost like I had some created, I had created some threads earlier in the story, and I was kind of writing them, going, "Well, that's interesting. I wonder how that's going to resolve." <laughs> but there, there came a point where it kind of just clicked, and I almost got excited, um, and you know, kind of had to make a note at the bottom. Okay, here's what I'm thinking for this direction, just so that I didn't forget. Um, but it was weird to have that feeling, just a feeling of excitement when I'm like, okay, I don't, it seems weird that I'm the author and then would suddenly be excited because I understand, wow, I'm going to finish my own story, but that's truly what happened. Wow. This is what impressed me probably the most about this story, Shannon. I, I like to have a deep conversation from time to time myself, and it's really fun to explore how different events are interpreted by different people and realizing that everybody has their own impression, you know, and, and outcomes about what, what has been observed. But when I read your story, I realized that this story allows each person to have like his or her own interpretation and impact. And so many stories don't allow for that. Sure. You know, they, they say, this is what's going on. But when I read this, I mean, it's like poetry. It speaks beyond the words that you wrote down. Does that make sense? And what do you hope that the listeners will gain from the story without putting them in a box, but just the idea that everybody can interpret this story in a way that impacts his or her own life in a special way? Do you have any goals for people with this story? I think... My hope is just that it will get people thinking and willing to self-examine a little bit. I think it was in an earlier commentary uh, that you and Caleb had mentioned how it can be difficult to kind of look inside and be introspective. And, you know, I'm not always surrounded by people who are introspective, but my hope is that this would allow people kind of a safe space to be introspective and think, how does this apply to me? And I don't necessarily have any goals as to what their conclusions are, but just that they're thinking about their their own human condition, because like you said, it's different for everybody. I think also, um, you know, this is a story about healing. And I think that's something that everybody needs in some capacity big or small. And so my, uh, my hope is if there's going to be one, well, it's not concrete, but <laughs> the most concrete of the abstract things would be to just say like, okay. healing. I hope people can find that through this story. This is maybe a little bit of an aside, but a related one. Have you heard of the study that they did where they had a group of people contemplate, meditate on their own death for 30 days? I've not heard that. It's fascinating because you would think that would be depressing and that that would make people really struggle with anxiety or any number of, of problems. The opposite turned out to be true. You know, they had control groups that were doing other meditations and that sort of thing. But people that meditated on their own demise at the end of the month were the happiest and they felt like it was life-changing. Wow. And it had helped them to evaluate their priorities and to decide what a life well-lived would be like. Wow. I was blown away when I heard that. And when I listen to your story here, When the Mountains Called, that's what I'm reminded of. Some people might say, well, that's really a sad story. And I stop and I go, no, I don't think so. <laughs> this, there's a sad topic involved, but no, this is a kind of story that can bring lasting joy to people. Maybe that's counterintuitive. No, I hope And maybe so. that's just the way I think. <laughs> I think I think joy should come from healing because, you know, there's, especially with tragedy, like what Andrew's going through is, you know, there's something irreplaceable is taken from him, but that doesn't mean that he can't find something else. And it's not a replacement, but I think it's crazy to say that you can't find joy at the end of healing. Hmm. Welcome to Crossroads Cantina. It sits somewhere between time and space, welcoming patrons from every walk of life. 
Come join me to hear their stories. Crossroads Cantina is a fiction podcast featuring narrated short stories and the occasional full cast audio drama episode. Head on over to www.crossroadscantinapodcast.com to subscribe on your podcast app of choice. Well, I could talk to you all day just about this sort of philosophical stuff, but part of these commentaries is to actually have a commentary. So why don't we go through episode six and talk a little bit about what's going on here. I think it's fun to kick around ideas of interpretation, and this is going to be tricky. When Caleb and I do this, we're not in your head, right? Yeah. So, and same with Jonathan, we each have our own, like, oh, this is how it hit me. So we're going to have to figure out how this works when the author's sitting here, right? And uh, everyone out there, we're not going to give anything away. No no spoilers, <laughs> <laughs> right? And I couldn't anyway, because I, I hear these episodes as they come out, just like everyone else. But I think, Shannon, you have the long views, so Yeah, I'll, we'll I'll be careful. Be careful. <laughs> <laughs> so this story, this episode, starts with another quote-unquote dream sequence. And then I, I started saying, no, it's more like a daydream sequence. So that's two episodes in a row that started with a kind of dreamy world. Yeah. Um, and at first... I didn't really know what to make of that. And Jonathan and I talked quite a bit about that um, in our last commentary. It's like, what's going on here? Especially because in this dream, there's a voice talking to Andrew. Yeah. And, you know, there was a voice that called Andrew to the mountains. And then when he met Mac, it was like, it was Mac the voice. And then it it becomes, no, Mac's not the voice, but Mac seems to know the voice. (laughs) But in this dream sequence, you know, I keep on speculating, is this Andrew's own psyche, or is there a personification out there that's pulling Andrew? And so, I don't know. Maybe you shouldn't overthink that at this point. I just pose questions. I'm not really looking for answers. But I think it's really fascinating how that's woven into the story. You have the gardens, and the house, and the tree, and the hammock. But you hid the curtains, and you got rid of the horses. You have the same fields, but a new fence. Her hiking boots and trekking poles and gardening gloves. The cribbage set that she brought into town every Thursday to play with the girls at church. And the mandolin she was given, but never learned to play. These things are in the closet in that house. They're contained, though you tell yourself they are treasured. But true treasures are not hidden. You have the gardens, and the house, and the tree, and the hammock but you hid the treasures and got rid of the memories. Do you recognize this house? Is it the same as before? When the sun shines on it, highlighting the brown gray of the boards and skimming the grasses that form its skirt, tell me what you see. Everything is neat, there is no clutter. Not even in the closet. That is contained, after all. The grasses blow the same, and the tree continually yields apples, and you can still smell the sweet honeysuckle after every morning rain. Oh, the sunsets, those are still faithful. The splash of crimson puckered up against the distant shadowed mountains, the soft blue of the sleepy sky above, and the pink that blends it all together. Beautiful. So beautiful. And comfortable, too, when you stand in the swaying grass and watch it all. Yes, your house is still there, in the valley and the rolling hills. All comfortable, just as before. But the horses are gone. Yeah. And yeah, I guess I would say, you know, the who isn't so important as the what in in the dreams, I think. But I think later on you hopefully start to get a sense of who that might be or how, you know, I and I I don't know necessarily I don't think necessarily there has to be one answer in that. Sometimes when I was writing those, I thought, you know, this is me talking to Andrew, but I also didn't write myself into the story. So right. I could have just resonated really well with the narrator of the dream sequence. It doesn't mean it's, you know, Shannon, a character in the story. <laughs> but no, like. I think later on there's that becomes a little bit clearer. My hope is just that the dreams kind of help clarify some of Andrew's own thoughts. 
and where yeah, he's at. Yeah, he's going through quite the transformation. And one thing that I think this episode really brings out, and I'm going to say again, because it's not the first time, is about dealing with memories and processing them in a healthy way. I mean, when when Andrew, what, four episodes ago, was deciding whether or not to get in the river, the voice was telling him things about some of these memories you're going to want to cling to and other others of these memories you don't want to see. And you might be hanging on to the bank because you don't want to continue on. And what you need to do is go with the flow of the river and experience all of this. Um, but what was fascinating about that was I was anticipating in the next episode, he would be in the river and he'd be going through a, a movie replaying his life. Instead, he fell asleep. <laughs> And so it was like, oh, he wasn't ready to face these memories. And now here we are in this episode, and I think he gets slapped in the face by it. Yeah, it is a little jarring, and it was jarring when I listened to it as well. But I think, I mean, the one thing you can say about the narrator, whoever is the dream sequence, is that, you know, they're not coddling him, or, you know, they're telling it like it is. They're saying that everything they say, there's some things that are really harsh, but all of it is true. Mm. Well, in the dream sequence, um, Andrew has presented a view of his, of his house. And, and, and the narrator says, do you recognize it? And you're like, what? Yeah. It's almost as if the house, well, that's a clue, right? Here we go. We have another beautiful metaphor about what's going on in Andrew's life. And the beautiful thing about that is that Andrew's life is a metaphor for what goes on in all of our lives to some degree. And that's what is the genius of this story. But anyway, let's, let's go into it a little bit. So Andrew, he envisions the, the house and he sees all the things that he's done for all the years. He has the gardens and, you know, everything. And it kind of has a happy glow to it. It's his comfortable, happy place, except for the horses and the curtains. And I guess the horses were pearls, so he got rid of those. And it, it said that the curtains reminded him of Pearl's eyes, I believe. So he couldn't handle the curtains. Yes. And we start to get a hint here. He's got this house, and you think that he's staying there because that's where he lived with his love for all those years. That's where he was with Pearl. But then you begin to realize, wait a minute. It sounds like he tried to sterilize the house of Pearl. Am I right there? Yeah. And I think that's something that he, you know, doesn't realize until this dream and until this episode, the whole sequence, because I'm sure we'll talk about this, but at the end of that chapter of that part of the story, he's left Mm. in tears. It's transformative. And, yeah, and I think when I'm listening to it and as we're talking about this house, which is, you know, picture perfect until until it's not, until it's burning, it's, you know, Andrew's kind of dis- been deceived. And um, I think, you know, it's one thing to be deceived by another person, but it's quite another thing when you've deceived Mm. yourself. And I think that's what he's waking up to this fact a little bit. Well, it's also interesting that he tried to keep the house the same as it always had been, for the most part, except he had replaced the fence. He built a new fence, and it says was to keep people out, but now it's keeping him out. Yeah. So that's another, it's like, okay, first of all, we didn't know until a couple of episodes ago how long, or, you know, how long it had been. And we didn't really know until this episode, but that he had become a hermit as well. Right. And increasingly, I'm getting a a picture of Andrew that I didn't get in the beginning. And, And that picture is of someone who's kind of built an alternative reality to cope with life. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, highlighted by the fact that he does say, apart from Mac and the Valley Girl, you know, this guy that's on the mountain, 
is the first person he's seen in a long time. Mm. And, you know, we're, as the reader, we're kind of, we, we, we understand things at the same time Andrew does. And so his reality Mm. is our reality. And the fact that Andrew at the beginning wasn't saying, hello, I'm watching the sunset and I'm a recluse is really (laughs) important because, you know, he didn't know. Yeah. Well, and here's another thing that was very telling about this little part of this. Um, There was talk of a storm that broke a branch on the apple tree and it fell onto the hammock that was over the grave and it stopped the, the branch from hitting the cross of Pearl's grave. And we see all of this, but here's the crazy thing. That was the first and the last time that Andrew ever went to the grave. And it took a storm. And so here's a weird part, Shannon, and this is part of the genius of this. This is all about Andrew and his own psyche. This is all about Andrew finding Pearl. It's like, I am finding Pearl. It's my, it's my motivation for everything that's going on here. I'm going after Pearl. But he'd never even been to the grave. What's going on there? Yeah. Clearly he is, again, he's under some delusion. And you have to ask is, you know, does he not want to go to the grave? It seems ludicrous to think that he could have forgotten about the grave. Her death is all he thinks about. But, yeah, it's, you know, it's painful to think that you have a loved one that you would shut away, you know, by choice. Like, the closest he could come to her in would be the grave or the the mem- the items that are hers but he's not really interested in being by any Well of and those that things. brings us to the closet which is a main character in this episode. <laughs> so the house <laughs> yep. has all been kind of neutralized for him, right? Except he put Pearl's things in the closet and it there is a, a point there where it says they're contained not treasured. And I think there's it's like, a difference. Oh, Pearl's in the closet, sort of. <laughs> and he's not he's not going there. He's he's shut those things away. And uh it, it just seems to me that he was getting rid of the memories. So we're back to memories again. Yes. Which is a lot of what this episode is about. So why don't we move forward? Um We get a repeat of the Valley Girl's words early on, and this is how the last episode ended, was with these words. Your grief is powerful and it consumes you. Where am I in you? And I'm still pondering that, Shannon, because that's deep. It's so multifaceted. And... I, I could make a simplified explanation here, but I'm going to refrain from doing so. But I think maybe what makes sense is for us to talk briefly about what the Valley Girl is. I mean, she's keeping the river back from destroying people lower in the valley, right? Yeah. She allows the river to flow, but she also contains it somehow. Yeah. And then she says, where am I in you? And I think, oh, Wow. I'm not sure where to go with that. I just want to throw it out there because I think that's probably very important. Yeah, and, you know, what she contains and what she chooses to let past her is important. And it's it's not just the people in the valley that she's, you know, protecting. But Mac, I think, earlier, might have been in episode five, mentions like if she wasn't doing this my home would be washed Mm. away and and i think there was there was a lot of time that andrew spent you know marveling at the mountain as they were climbing it the first mountain and reflecting on the 30-foot waterfall and the woods and the way mac was moving through the woods and just none of those things would have been possible if the great river hadn't been uh, damned in some way. 
And it's interesting because the valley girl was doing a service. But at the same time, I almost get the impression that we can hold too many things back inside. And... Yeah, I would, I would agree. <laughs> well, and this, this part of the river concept here, too, is, is kind of wild because it's so cold. It's, it's always described as icy and painful if you get in this river, right? And yet yeah. here is this valley girl who endures that pain in timeless immemorial, right? She, she's enduring that for the sake of good. But then it becomes apparent that, oh, but this could also be bad in some way. I, I, I'm still just guessing at all of this, which is the beauty of your story. It's why I'm having so much fun with it, because of the mysteries yet to be solved. So, and then Andrew starts thinking that, well, Pearl could change all of this. If I find Pearl, this is all going to be okay. And again, I think, yeah. okay, now you're back to your knee-jerk reaction. You avoided Pearl for, and we find out in this episode, 25 years. <laughs> it, it wasn't yesterday. Yes. At the beginning, <laughs> I thought that maybe he had lost Pearl that year, that he was still in, you know, the the 9 to 12 months of grieving that we all go through, right? But no, this is 25 years sure. ago. And now he thinks he's going to find Pearl, it's going to fix things. And I'm like, what? Yeah. So anyway. Well, and he he currently, at this point, he equates, you know, Max says, do you want to go rest in the valley for a while? And his reaction is, no, I'm not giving up. Yeah. And it's just, at this point, he equates Max's offer. You know, Mac wasn't saying, do you want to give up? He was saying, do you want to go rest? And... Currently, Andrew equates rest with giving up. And he did from the beginning. It seems like every time yeah. he considered rest, he had to stand back up until he got to Max Cabin. He finally rested for the first time. Right. But so he still has this drive that rest is giving up. Interesting. Interesting. Well, let's move forward. We're, you know, this is running. A tad longer than most, but I think it is so well worth it. But we're going to have to move forward to get through it. So I would love to just dive in so deep with all of this stuff. <laughs> the wind howled, and if it were possible, the fog was thicker the further they climbed. Thunder crashed around them, and the only light that pierced the clouds around them came from intermittent flashes of lightning. And when he turned around, Mac's eyes. Andrew's toes caught on rocks, making him stumble. It was frustrating. All he wanted to do was to make it to the summit, to see if Pearl was there but his mind kept wandering. It was as if every time his feet tripped, his mind was snatched by some other nagging thought. Had he locked the house when he left? What about the garden? What seeds should he plant next year? Certainly there was more landscaping maintenance to do. Not to change anything, but to keep it from becoming too overgrown and unkept. These thoughts were not altogether foreign. In fact, they were reminiscent of a typical day back in his little house. The steady, day-to-day, season-to-season routine that Andrew was sure to maintain. But he didn't want these thoughts now. Now was the time to focus on Pearl. Now was the time to pay attention to his steps. Now was the time to follow Mac. Why were these thoughts intruding? They were comfortable thoughts, and that was what bothered him the most. He wanted to dwell in them. He wanted to be wrapped up by these monotonous, quotidian musings. They were easier. Easier than stumbling through fog and searching for his dead wife. Easier than the potential for failure that this adventure offered easier than hoping. Hope was dangerous. Hope was not certain. These thoughts were certain. He missed certainty, but he also missed Pearl. So they head from the saddle up this mountain, and it's there are beautiful descriptions in there, but it's a darker place. There's fog. There's a thunderstorm going on without rain. There's rumbling, and the fog is thick, and it's, you get the feeling of consuming and as they enter the fog, I love the, the words you used here, first wisps of fog wrapped around his head. Sounds like a snake. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then we start realizing that this fog is wrapping not only around his head, but into his head. Tell us what's going on here. I think, you know, as Andrew's... Andrew's going into this mountain and 
he's hell-bent on finding Pearl. And we know that, but suddenly he's consumed with all these thoughts, right, of mundane, kind of boring things, but things that he does every day, things that keep his house running and keep his life running, and suddenly these start infiltrating. Like, they're not welcome right now because they're not part of his task that he's set on, which is finding Pearl. And when he's in this mountain, he suddenly finds himself distracted by things that he wouldn't have been distracted by if he was back home, right? Like, these things that he just did every day, and I think it says Mm. part of his routine. And suddenly his routine is distracting. And, you know, the comfort of his home... And this is, it's, it ties in with the dream he has. It, the comfort of his home is not comforting anymore. It's actually an impediment to what he's trying to do. He's trying to find Pearl, and the comfort of his routine is getting in the way of that. And I think it's just, it's one of the first times he realizes, or he, he's almost frightened by the things that for the past 25 years he was comforted by wow that's that's one of those revelation moments it's just like oh i've been so confused i see it now yeah but he also says that hope was dangerous and hope was not certain and that he was missing certainty so there's you know the this is the siren's call yeah and that's the thing is he's not You know, he doesn't abhor comfort and routine, and that's what's tempting about it. And I think, you know, what's what that reveals about this this mountain and this fog is that, you know, the people choose. We get to choose what we want to focus on and what we let into our minds. Mm. And as much as Andrews freaking out because of these unwelcome thoughts which were previously very welcome he he can choose them and it's a it's a temptation to to do that and then you know mac and andrew see this man who has chosen that right i like to call him the scary dude right (laughs) (laughs) so here comes the scary dude and scary he is so the the storm around them without rain just seems to get so intense he can't they they can't see more than just a few feet but then this guy shows up the scary dude shows up and let me let me give a little bit of his description so the listeners will remember what it says he had an almost translucent face his clothes kind of like max they they looked both worn and timeless and again it made andrew think is this death am i dead is this guy also dead but we don't get an answer to that. He realizes this guy's clothes are nearly identical to his own, which really scares him because it starts to get personal because this guy is so scary. This guy's eyes are half closed and he has a, a weird smile where the corners of his mouth are turned up, but it doesn't seem sincere somehow. And then we finally hear that this is the most terrifying thing that Andrew had ever seen. Yeah. Oh, and I love this one. <laughs> Pupils, dark wells that sunk into the back of the man's head. <laughs> yeah, like, nobody. Whoa, I don't want to fall nobody into Nobody wants their eyes to <laughs> be described that way. It's not comforting. <laughs> and then the scary dude, he smiles, and the question is posed, where, where is he wanting to go? And he says, here's fine. And... You know, often people would say, well, here is fine. It's the known. It's the safe. But in this case, here is fine has to be one of the most terrifying thing that Andrew has ever heard, right? Right. The face of the man in front of him was the most terrifying thing he had ever seen. Indeed, his skin was translucent, and he would have appeared headless in the fog if not for a thick head of jet black hair, which draped over his shoulders and ran down his back. His half-shut eyes made only his pupils visible, dark wells that sunk into the back of his head. But 
the most unnerving was the man's smile. It stretched across his white cheeks in a thin line, lips pressed together and upturned at the ends in some sort of sleepy grimace. Andrew had the sense that the man was indeed smiling, but something about the way it appeared made Andrew wonder if his sleep was truly blissful. The sleeping man's smile broke as he raised his hand. Hello. And then, though his voice was musical, the hairs on Andrew's forearms stood up. The man's voice was sleepy too, soft and lyrical, not unlike Max. But unlike Max's voice, the cadence of this man's speech was broken at the second syllable. The O of hello snatched away on the wind in a distinctly minor tone. Andrew was not a hopeful musician like Pearl had been, but it was impossible to miss the haunting melody of this man's hello, and yet the eerie smile. Max's response was cheerful, but his face was downturned. Where do you go, my brother? he asked. The man cocked his head to the side, and his nostrils twitched as the wind swept up. Right here, he said, his smile plastered and his eyes unblinking. Right here is fine. Mac glanced at Andrew, but Andrew's gaze was fixated on the man's face, and then again on his corduroy pants. Right, and this, I mean, I think when I, when I heard it back, played back to me in Jonathan's voice and with the music, all that I could hear is, you know, maybe this is just a Midwestern thing, but when our lives aren't going well and somebody says, how are you? And we say, oh, it's fine. I'm fine. Mm. And I think that's our, especially if you're not willing to be vulnerable, that's the knee-jerk reaction. But it takes a toll because eventually, you know, your, your reality becomes what you say your reality is what you think your reality is. Okay, let's dive into that just a little bit. Well, he's not, he's oblivious to his reality and he's chosen, maybe not oblivious to his reality, but he's chosen something that's not true, which is ultimately what Max says. So this made me think, okay, real life, back out of the story into the, the lives that we all live right now. How many of us are living in real reality? I mean, that's the question, right? And that's what the, the symbolism in the story has, I mean, it begs to be answered by each person individually. I, I was kind of like, whoa, so to some degree or another, we're all like this dude, this scary dude. And I mean, I, each individual has to answer their own their own question about that. But wow, Shannon, it, it, this is like, whoa, this is... This is the real deal right here. This is where the rubber meets the road in so many people's lives. Yeah. It's what what aren't you willing to wrestle with? And that's what, you know, this man looks like Andrew in some ways, and that forces Andrew to project himself. And what, what am I not wrestling with? And you know, it propels him to think back to his dream and propels him to think about the closet and all those things that we talked about. Well, let's go to the closet in just a second. I want to mention what Max says to Andrew about what's going on here. These are the forgetting people, and they come to this place to forget, even to forget that they're forgetting. And then there's another statement that wondering helps us to forget. For if we wander, our minds wander too. And I think, oh man, how many people wander through life full of distractions and I have to I have to share one little anecdote. I was a teacher many years ago, and I loved it. I taught middle school students, and we would take them into the woods once a year for sort of an outdoor education experience, and that would pull them away from all of their cozy little houses that they had built for their lives. And these kids, some of them were fine. They would thrive. Some just had a great new adventure, but some would come undone. It was a week-long camp, and often kids would have to go home because once they were pulled from the metaphors of life that they found comfortable, they couldn't function anymore. And I was like, wow, that was such an experience. I worked with other groups of kids. We'd take them on backpacking trips, and what they couldn't be away from was their music. Sure. That was it was like they had to have the music playing. It was the distraction that made them okay. 
And when we would take them into the woods for three or four days, if they didn't have their music, they, they would start to unravel. And this is what this sequence reminded me so much of, is that people really go through this. This is a real thing. This is not just an extreme metaphor. This is very real. And I just throw it out there because I, I recognize this, you know? I think all of us, to some degree, have to realize, is it, is it YouTube? Is it Netflix? How are we getting through this craziest year that we've had in, in living history, right? Yeah. You know, what are our distractions that we're using? And, I mean, some distractions can be fine, but the question really is, could life be richer, more real? I don't know. I'm just going to throw that out there and move on. <laughs> so... Um, the man is hiding from the world, and there are several things that are listed here that he's hiding from. Uh, they're hiding from the world and what hurts them. The icy cold of the river. It's painful but refreshing. They want to forget the pain, but they don't see the sun. They live in a fog. And their senses are turned off, and their sanctuary becomes their prison. Wow. I don't, we don't need to explain that, I think. We just need to ponder it a little bit. Their sanctuary becomes their prison. And I'm going to just move us along. Um, Andrew starts getting even foggier and, and more nervous. And then at about this time, the scary dude curls up in a ball and there's a clap of thunder and lightning and, and the guy's gone. Yep. It's like he's, he's forgotten. He is exactly. no more. Yes. The wind howled around them once more, and the sleeping man smiled wider. He bent down to the rock shrouded in fog beneath his feet, and he lay down, curled up, and put his head beneath his hands. His eyelids closed, the final millimeter between them. The fog surged around him in an instant, wrapping him up. Thunder crashed, and lightning struck the blanket of mist that held the man. Andrew closed his eyes against the storm, and when he opened them again, he heard somewhere from within the fog, I am fine. But the man was gone. So is that the ultimate destiny if we don't live in reality? Well, I think so. I think Mac thinks so. Um, you know, he says to forget oneself is worth a thousand deaths. Mm. And, you know, you can construct, you can, and I think this is what we were talking about earlier, just the idea of self-deception. You can construct your own reality and come up with all these distractions, but the second you have forgotten that you are creating things that aren't true or create, if you forget that your distractions are distractions or you forget that you forget what you came there to forget, you know, you're, you're digging yourself into a deeper hole that is further and further from the truth. And Mac equates the truth with life basically, because this man doesn't have the truth and so his whole identity is just gone. It says he simply, you know, he was there until quite simply he was not. Wow. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. That yeah. sounds like Mac, right? Yep. That, <laughs> that, is, sounds like Mac. that is his philosophy right there. <laughs> <laughs> and then we get the juxtaposition of the opposite of that. The forgetting yeah. ones who even forget themselves. Wow. Well, and this is the first time that Andrew cries, and this is where we find out that it's 25 years since Pearl died. He falls to his knees and he sobs for the first time in 25 years. Something here resonated. Yeah. There's, you know, I think we're supposed to cue into that because the man looked like Andrew, but obviously he's not Andrew. Andrew just sees himself in the sky and again, the dream comes back to him and all these things that he's realized he's been trying to forget. And he, you know, he gets afraid, I think. Be because, and, and I think he starts to see himself yeah. a little bit as a culprit because of what he has done. You know, he didn't, he didn't kill his wife 
but he, after she dies, he doesn't really do much to preserve her either. Well, let's talk about how this episode closes because it kind of addresses that. Andrew remembers the house again as they're leaving the mountain. Now they're back in the sun. The sun is setting and Mac is having to support Andrew with an elbow and a back and (laughs) holding him as he stumbles (laughs) along and Andrew's like undone. But Andrew remembers the house. But here's the crazy thing. At the beginning, the house was, you know, the place he couldn't get to and he was starting to turn away from, but it was his place of comfort and all of that. But now he starts to see it as cold and and gray and and run down and everything becomes like grayscale. Right. I think initially... You know, earlier um, we were talking about just, is this a sad story? And I think here's an example where, you know, you listen to it and you go, that is so sad. Like his memory, the memory of his house is tainted. Hmm. But, you know, Andrew asks Mac, what's the big deal if this guy is happy, this forgetting man? Like, why does it matter that he's constructing this reality as long as he's happy? Well, first of all, Andrew makes the observation that that man doesn't even look happy. It's kind of a creepy grimace that he's got on his face. It's like self-deceived happiness. But Mac also says, again, just if if it's not the truth, it's not going to bring happiness. Which some people might disagree with, honestly. <laughs> but I think that's what Andrew starts to, you know, that's what we can remember, even as the picture of his house is kind of dismantling before his, being dismantled before his eyes. It's almost like a victory, I think. Well, and we have to mention the closet as part of this, because now the closet door is open, and while everything is like falling apart and grayscale and all this, there's light pouring out from the closet, and Pearl's old things are sp- billing out. They want to be known now after 25 years, and that's the source of light. You know, I didn't get it in the story until this episode that Andrew pining after Pearl, he wasn't really pining after Pearl. Not really. Yeah. Something else kind of darker was going on here. (laughs) Right. And I think he's not even aware of that. Mm. Maybe starting to be aware of it, but, you know, we'll notice that in this, this, at this point, he's just, his reality is crumbling. That's what he realizes. But it's not like he, he knows what is actually happening then. Right. He's kind of on the, it's on, we're on the cusp, I feel like, at this point. Well, it's, it's mentioned that in trying to forget Pearl's death, he had forgotten her life. And then it kind of ends with him saying, I'm sorry. But he wasn't quite sure who he was talking to. I'm super excited, Shannon, about the next episodes because I'm loving the transformation that we're seeing here. And it actually provides a lot of hope for me. I read this and I say, you know, there are people or, or even parts of ourselves, right? Segmented parts of ourselves that need to go through this kind of an experience. This is a kind of threatening transformation that we need so that we can begin to see things in a new way. See the closet door open with light pouring out. I mean, people need that, especially now. And I, I see so much hope in that. So thank you. Right. It, I just want to say it thank doesn't you. feel good, but it's necessary. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? I would be remiss not to have you read some section before we close here, because to hear you read it in your own voice, pick any passage out of this episode that you think would be fun, and we read it for us? Sure. Yeah, it sounds, again, it might not be the most uplifting, but this is important. I think that here we have Andrew realized for 25 years he had hidden Pearl's things away, shoving them in closets and cupboards away, away, all to forget the memory of her death, ensconcing himself in the house they had shared together, in the garden they'd built together, never dwelling in these things and their relation to her, but simply existing within them. But in doing so, Andrew had not only immersed himself in the act of forgetting Pearl's death, he had, in fact, succeeded 
in forgetting her life. All this time he had been trying to cling to her, to preserve her, but he had only shut her away from himself and the rest of the world. She was dead, and he had killed her memory, too. Wow. Well, one problem with podcasts is that you can never hear the applause, but I'm clapping for you right now. (laughs) (laughs) And I know that the listeners are clapping, too. And hey, listeners out there, leave some comments. Uh, Let us know what you think. Good, bad, fun, insightful, impactful. Let us know how things are going. And please do share the podcast with your friends because... I'm going to speak for you, Shannon. I think that what you've done here is that you have created something that can be super insightful for everyone, but also very healing for so many. And so I think it's worthwhile. People should know about your story. I agree. I hope so. (laughs) Well, thank you, Shannon, so much for your time today and for helping us unpack this episode. I, uh, I really enjoyed it. And I am looking forward to the next, I guess, four more episodes in this season. Yes. So, oh, super excited and uh, don't know where to go from here. But thank you very much. Thanks, Mati. Good to, good to be here. <laughs> All right. Take care. Bye.